M. Prohibant, it was not I who gave him this name, but M. Charles Dupin, devoted his time and capital to converting the ore found on his land into iron. As nature had been more lavish towards the Belgians, they furnished the French with iron cheaper than M. Prohibent, which means that all the French, or France, could obtain a given quantity of iron with less labor by buying it from the honest Flemings. Therefore, guided by their own interest, they did not fail to do so, and every day there might be seen a multitude of nailsmiths, blacksmiths, cartwrights, machinists, farriers, and laborers going themselves, or sending intermediates, to supply themselves in Belgium. This displeased M. Prohibent exceedingly. At first it occurred to him to put an end to this abuse by his own efforts. It was the least he could do, for he was the only sufferer. I will take my carbine, said he. I will put four pistols into my belt. I will fill my cartridge box. I will gird on my sword, and go thus equipped to the frontier. There, the first blacksmith, nailsmith, farrier, machinist, or locksmith, who presents himself to do his own business, and not mine, I will kill, to teach him how to live. At the moment of starting, M. Prohibent made a few reflections which calmed down his warlike ardor a little. He said to himself, In the first place, it is not absolutely impossible that the purchasers of iron, my countrymen and enemies, should take the thing ill, and, instead of letting me kill them, should kill me instead. And then, even were I to call out all my servants, we should not be able to defend the passages. In short, this proceeding would cost me very dear, much more so than the result would be worth. M. Prohibent was on the point of resigning himself to his sad fate, that of being only as free as the rest of the world, when a ray of light darted across his brain. He recollected that at Paris there is a great manufactory of laws. What is a law? said he to himself. It is a measure, to which, when once it is decreed, be it good or bad, everybody is bound to conform. For the execution of the same, a public force is organized, and to constitute the said public force, men and money are drawn from the whole nation. If, then, I could only get the great Parisian manufactory to pass a little law, Belgian iron is prohibited. I should obtain the following results. The government would replace the few valets that I was going to send to the frontier by 20,000 of the sons of those refractory blacksmiths, farriers, artisans, machinists, locksmiths, nailsmiths, and laborers. Then to keep these 20,000 custom house officers in health and good humor, it would distribute among them 25 millions of francs taken from these blacksmiths, nailsmiths, artisans, and laborers. They would guard the frontier much better, would cost me nothing, I should not be exposed to the brutality of the brokers, should sell the iron at my own price, and have the sweet satisfaction of seeing our great people shamefully mystified. That would teach them to proclaim themselves perpetually the harbingers and promoters of progress in Europe. Oh, it would be a capital joke, and deserves to be tried. So M. Prohibent went to the law manufactory. Another time, perhaps, 
I shall relate the story of his underhand dealings, but now I shall merely mention his visible proceedings. He brought the following consideration before the view of the legislating gentleman. Belgian iron is sold in France at ten francs, which obliges me to sell mine at the same price. I should like to sell at fifteen, but cannot do so on account of this Belgian iron, which I wish was at the bottom of the Red Sea. I beg you will make a law that no more Belgian iron shall enter France. Immediately I raise my price five francs, and these are the consequences. For every hundred weight of iron that I shall deliver to the public, I shall receive fifteen francs instead of ten. I shall grow rich more rapidly, extend my traffic, and employ more workmen. My workmen and I shall spend much more freely, to the great advantage of our tradesmen for miles around. These latter, having more custom, will furnish more employment to trade, and activity on both sides will increase in the country. This fortunate piece of money, which you will drop into my strong box, will, like a stone thrown into a lake, give birth to an infinite number of concentric circles. Charmed with his discourse, delighted to learn that it is so easy to promote, by legislating, the prosperity of a people, the lawmakers voted the restriction. Talk of labor and economy, they said. What is the use of these painful means of increasing the national wealth, when all that is wanted for this object is a decree? And, in fact, the law produced all the consequences announced by M. Prohibent. The only thing was, it produced others, which he had not foreseen. To do him justice, his reasoning was not false, but only incomplete. In endeavoring to obtain a privilege, he had taken cognizance of the effects which are seen, leaving in the background those which are not seen. He had pointed out only two personages, whereas there are three concerned in the affair. It is for us to supply this involuntary or premeditated omission. It is true, the crown piece, thus directed by law into M. Prohibent's strong box, is advantageous to him and to those whose labor it would encourage. And if the act had caused the crown piece to descend from the moon, these good effects would not have been counterbalanced by any corresponding evils. Unfortunately, the mysterious piece of money does not come from the moon, but from the pocket of a blacksmith, or a nailsmith, or a cartwright, or a farrier, or a laborer, or a shipwright. In a word, from James B., who gives it now without receiving a grain more of iron than when he was paying ten francs. Thus we can see at a glance that this very much alters the state of the case. For it is very evident that M. Prohibent's profit is compensated by James B.'s loss. And all that M. Prohibent can do with the crown piece for the encouragement of national labor, James B. might have done himself. The stone has only been thrown upon one part of the lake, because the law has prevented it from being thrown upon another. Therefore, that which is not seen supersedes that which is seen, and at this point there remains, as the residue of the operation, a piece of injustice, and, sad to say, a piece of injustice perpetrated by the law. This is not all. I have said 
that there is always a third person left in the background. I must now bring him forward, that he may reveal to us a second loss of five francs. Then we shall have the entire results of the transaction. James B. is the possessor of fifteen francs, the fruit of his labor. He is now free. What does he do with his fifteen francs? He purchases some article of fashion for ten francs, and with it he pays, or the intermediate pay for him, for the hundredweight of Belgian iron. After this he has five francs left. He does not throw them into the river, but, and this is what is not seen, he gives them to some tradesman in exchange for some enjoyment, to a bookseller, for instance, for Bossuet's Discourse on Universal History. Thus, as far as national labor is concerned, it is encouraged to the amount of 15 francs, viz. 10 francs for the Paris article, 5 francs to the bookselling trade. As to James B., he obtains for his 15 francs two gratifications, viz. First, a hundred weight of iron. Second, a book. The decree is put in force. How does it affect the condition of James B? How does it affect national labor? James B pays every centime of his five francs to M. Prohibent, and therefore is deprived of the pleasure of a book, or of some other thing of equal value. He loses five francs. This must be admitted, it cannot fail to be admitted, that when the restriction raises the price of things, the consumer loses the difference. But, then, it is said, national labor is the gainer. No, it is not the gainer, for since the act, it is no more encouraged than it was before, to the amount of fifteen francs. The only thing is that, since the act, the fifteen francs of James B. go to the metal trade, while before it was put in force, they were divided between the milliner and the bookseller. The violence used by M. Prohibent on the frontier, or that which he causes to be used by the law, may be judged very differently in a moral point of view. Some persons consider that plunder is perfectly justifiable, if only sanctioned by law. But for myself, I cannot imagine anything more aggravating. However it may be, the economical results are the same in both cases. Look at the thing as you will, but if you are impartial, you will see that no good can come of legal or illegal plunder. We do not deny that it affords M. Prohibent, or his trade, or if you will, national industry, a profit of five francs. But we affirm that it causes two losses, one to James B., who pays fifteen francs, where he otherwise would have paid ten. The other, to national industry, which does not receive the difference. Take your choice of these two losses, and compensate with it the profit which we allow. The other will prove, not the less, a dead loss. Here is the moral. To take by violence is not to produce, but to destroy. Truly, if taking by violence was producing, this country of ours would be a little richer than she is.